that's who we talk about. Yes? Karma. Marco, you'd like us to talk about karma? Okay. Yes, because I, it took me a while to believe in reincarnation. I had some experiences that kind of reinforced my belief. And, and then I started thinking about it, and I thought, if karma is what you earn, then whatever we're suffering, we've earned. And when you see others suffering, then that's just their karma. And I'm having a hard time. I can't go there. So yeah. I, I don't understand it. Okay, it's, karma is often misunderstood in that way, where it seems like, yes, that whatever's happening to somebody, well, it's their karma, they deserve it. <laughs> and that's, that's not the meaning at all. Um, and where this misunderstanding comes from uh, is thinking of karma more in terms of uh, the idea that there's somehow somebody or something that is keeping track of everything you do and causing things to happen because you deserve them to happen. And there is no such thing. There's no such being and there's no such mechanism. Um, the original meaning, the original word karma did come from an ancient Brahmanical belief before the time of the Buddha. What was the word? Brahmanical. The Brahmins. Oh. Right? And they did believe in the existence of gods and supernatural forces, and they carried out many rites and rituals, and it was the proper conduction of rites and rituals which would uh, persuade these gods to make things happen you know, the, make the, the rain fall for the crops and the sun to shine and things like that. And gradually, this idea developed into the idea of individual karma from how well you perform the rites and rituals to all the other moral aspects of your life. The same idea that there is some sort of supernatural power that then, when you get reborn, uh, causes you to be reborn in certain circumstances or to uh, experience certain kind of things throughout your life. But that is not the Buddhist idea of karma. Is that more Hindu then? That's a Hindu idea. Ah, okay, that's right. Um, the Buddhist, what the Buddha is basically teaching, he used the idea of karma but tweaked it, corrected it somewhat. Uh, everything we are the result of all of our past experiences and most especially how we have reacted to those experiences. So whereas in the Hindu system karma means action and your actions will bring consequences, which the Buddha doesn't dispute as long as the consequences you're talking about are, you know, if you are unkind to the people that you live with, well, they're you, they're, you're not going to get along with them very well, and you're going to suffer the consequences of that. Natural consequences. Natural consequences. Natural consequences. But he said, when he spoke of karma, he meant intention, because it is the intentional activity of our mind that conditions our mind and determines the kind of person that we are in the future. 
And in this regard, this is not just karma applying to something that's going to happen in a future lifetime. It happens constantly. The intentions that arise and the mental states that you identify with and generate thoughts out of and generate actions out of today are going to have an influence on who you are and how you react to things tomorrow and the next day and next week and next month and so on. So the reactions, the, the consequences are not deferred to a previous, to, to, uh, to a subsequent life, but they're happening constantly. And what you are, the kind of person that you are and the kind of experiences you have is determined by your past karma. And what you will be in the future is determined by the karma that you make now in the present. So this is the Buddhist teaching. And the Buddha said, you know, that in terms of the fruit of karma, the fruit of karma is how you experience what happens to you, not what happens to you. What happens to you is a result of all kinds of other things. And if you think about it logically, you'd have to have some really incredible supernatural power in charge to make sure that, uh, you know, uh, if a plane crashes, that everybody on board had to have, have, you know, somehow engineered things so everybody on board had the karma to be in a plane crash. Yeah. I mean, how do you explain things like that? I and war and things like that. No, the Buddha said that how you experience what happens to you, whether you specifically whether you experience suffering and the causes of suffering when things arise, that's your karma. Or if you instead experience uh, equanimity, happiness, joy, loving kindness, patience, these positive qualities, that's your good karma. So in Buddhism, we try to make good karma by recognizing when our bad karma from the past has arisen. Every time you become upset, angry, annoyed, uh, fearful, judgmental, uh, critical, angry, whatever, that's your past karma arising. If you say, I am angry, or I believe this is the way things should be, then you're making new karma. Because now, in the future, you're, you're going to continue to have that kind of reaction uh, arise. And then if you feel angry or critical, if you, if you set in motion thoughts about that, you know, if your mind starts going, yeah, 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 about what you're angry about, or yeah, 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 about what you think should be differently, that's making more karma, that's making it even stronger. And then if you say something or do something, well, it starts to get really strong. And of course, if you actually say something or do something, you're going to get the regular kind of consequences coming back at you as well. So, uh, we're constantly creating karma by how we react to what happens. So if something happens and it makes you angry, the anger you feel in the present moment, that's your past, that's the results of your past karma. What you do with it, that's the new karma you make that's going to determine what comes up in the future. And so when you see somebody else suffering, okay, what happened to them? Suppose somebody robbed them. Now, 
through all kinds through all kinds of operation of karma in exactly the way we're talking about right now, they may have created the circumstances to become robbed. You know, maybe they were too cheap to take a cab home, and so they walked down a dark street. And they got robbed, and so it's you know it is their previous conditioning that caused them to make the decisions that put them in that situation. Not karma. Uh, well, it is their karma. They, they made themselves into a greedy, chintzy person who wouldn't oh. spring the $20 for a cab ride. Right? So that part's their karma. The fact that while they're walking down the street, somebody stepped out of the shadows and mugged them, that isn't karma. Is it karma? That is not karma. Their karma got them into the situation because they react how they reacted when, okay, i got to go home. $20 for a cab? No way. That's their karma. That's their reaction to the present situation. As, uh, and then, so they're walking down the street. Somebody steps out of the shadows to mug them. That's not their karma, but how they react to it. You know, if, if, they're, uh, if they're terrified, if they're angry, if they're, for the next days and weeks, they feel... In, invaded and horribly upset and unhappy and and bemoan the loss of whatever it was, that's their karma. Our karma is how we respond to things. <laughs> Everything is absolutely interconnected, though. So at some level, we are responsible for everything that happens to us. We are responsible through our decisions for how we come to be in a particular place or in a particular situation. But it's not the matter of you did some bad thing to somebody in the past and therefore now this bad thing has happened to you. It's all of the little decisions you made that predisposed you to think and act and behave in certain ways that led you to be in certain circumstances. So your karma plays a role but it's not the idea, there is this mistaken sort of interpretation that everything, every aspect of everything that happens to you is entirely uh, the result of your karma as a person. And in Buddhism, the first thing we do is deny that any such person exists. So it's impossible for the karma to belong to that kind of a person only thing that the karma can belong to is just natural, logical, cause and effect relationships between this body and mind that we are and what that body and mind does. And it's not really separate from what all these other body-mind complexes wandering around us are doing. How does the Holocaust fit into that? What's that? The Holocaust. How does that fit into this? Well... How does the Holocaust fit into it? And see, this is this is a very good this this is a very good example. The Holocaust, earthquakes, floods, typhoons, all of the different things that you know like that. We can say, well, how does this fit into it? And here, let's let's take. Let's contrast two different kinds of things. There is the Holocaust, and then there's a uh, 
volcanic eruption, or let's not even take a, yeah, that's a good one, a volcanic eruption. The Holocaust and the volcanic eruption, you probably know that uh, there are whole cities that have been buried in volcanic lava, and when they dig them up, they find intact people, you know, going, ah. <laughs> right? Uh, and thousands and thousands of them, of course, there were millions of people affected by the Holocaust. Now, the difference between these two situations is that the volcanic eruption is something that likely the people didn't even know was going to happen, and they happened to be in the wrong place. And the other, uh, what happens is the result of the deliberate actions and intentions and, and actually hatreds of other people led to the Holocaust. Now, to really understand this, we have to go very deeply into what, uh, what the Buddha said and what Buddhism says about the way things really are. And unless we're willing to go into it that deeply, then we need to be satisfied with a simpler explanation. And that's really where a lot of the, this simple explanation, you know, for, for there are, I'm not sure how many Buddhists in the world, uh, but must be a question of a few billion, at least, I mean, there's six billion people, and I don't know, there's, a lot of Buddhists, and a lot of them are not that well educated and don't really understand the Dharma in a lot of depth. And so when they, they ask these questions, they, they answer what you might call the, the village Buddhist answer is, well, it's their, it's their karma. Right? Yeah. right? And that's, and then you look at this satisfies a lot of people and maybe motivates them, well, I'd better treat people better, I'd better uh, uh, make sure that I don't, uh, uh, that, that I keep the precepts and that uh, I donate lots of whatever I have to the local temple and things like that. So it kind of works within the, within the system, keeps the system going and answers their question and motivates them to, to live a better life. But when we go into it more deeply, the things that, that uh, what the Buddha discovered himself in his awakening is that the world, the way we perceive it, doesn't really exist. It's a projection of our mind. And this is not saying that nothing exists and everything's just a dream, because that's not the truth. But it might as well be in the sense that all we ever know is the way our minds interpret our sensory experiences. So every one of us is living in a world that's the best kind of explanation that our individual mind can come up with for the way reality impacts them. And the other thing is the Buddha discovered that this feeling of a self that we are, some sort of separate entity, and that's really, that's the most fundamental concept underlying the view of a 
self is that that self is separate from everything that is not self. And there, as soon as you have that, then you know you have the well, why did that happen to me kind of situation, and you also have that I want that and I don't want that, and so on and so forth. As soon as you make that distinction, the idea of a self that is that we all generate in our mind has this fundamental characteristic of separateness and independence, even though we know that uh, we are affected in many ways by things that we regard as not-self, we still feel like it's the same self, right? We can cha be changed in many ways, but we feel like underneath the changes is something that stayed the same. So this idea of self that we spontaneously generate in our minds is of something that is separate and is independent, that exists separately and independently from everything else that is not self. It feels like it's continuous. We've always been the same self, and we always will be the same self, and of course that makes us worry about what's going to happen when we die. And that makes us ask questions like, well, where did we come from? Where did I come from? And the other thing is that we feel like, of course, almost goes without saying, that there is just one of us, that, that there's only one of me. And so these are the particular qualities that we think of the self as having. And then in addition to that, um, the reason we feel like we have to have a self is, well, you know, otherwise, who is it that's experiencing all this stuff? Who did it happen to if it wasn't myself? Um, and uh, the other thing is, and also, who is it that's deciding things and doing things and making all this karma anyway? There's got to be a self. So you see, when we when we find ourselves with a teacher like the Buddha saying, that self that you think is there doesn't exist. It's just an idea in the mind. All of a sudden, these other ways of looking at karma and everything else become, they don't have the same significance. They become very problematic. Uh, in the deeper sense, the Buddha is saying that you aren't this separate self that you think you are. What there is, is the, this, this body and this mind, and that's real enough. And uh, indeed, although that body, we think of it, and you know, the skin is the, uh, we think of that as the boundary of it, and that we're separate from everything else, at a, at a deeper level, we realize that we're not. We, you know, from dust to dust, we are made of the same thing that the earth is, the trees, the rocks, other animals, the moon, the sun, the stars, everything. And the stuff that we're made of is just some of that same stuff organized in a particular way, temporarily. And it's always changing. The mind, even more so. Our mind, the mental part of us is constantly changing, constantly in flux, and is connected to all of the other people and all of the other sentient beings that we come in contact with. All of the contents of your mind as Margot are either uh, things that you, in one way or another, learned from other people or acquired from other people through your communications and interactions, or else they are conclusions that your own mind 
through about things. And so you kind of have to take this on faith until you do the meditation practice. But in the deepest sense, if you do what the Buddha did and look into your own mind and study it, you will discover that your mind and body do all the things that you thought you needed yourself to do. That, you know, in the seeing, as the Buddha said, in the seeing there is just the seeing. You don't need a separate seer. And, uh, uh, you know, other, other than the body and mind in which that's happening. And, and likewise with the thinking and the hearing and everything else. Also with the intentions and the doing and things like that. These, there is not some, some separate being inside of you that's making decisions. Your decisions are just the result of the workings of your mind. Your mind takes the information that comes in through the senses, compares it to all of its stored information, and says, aha, this is what I'm going to decide to do. And, you know, then your mind creates the idea of a self out of all of this and says, well, I decided. But that's just, a, that's just an idea that explains the end result. It's not actually something that's doing it. The Buddha said that, that the true nature of causality consists in five parts. There's physical causality, you know, material things. And you throw rocks in the air and one of them might fall down and hit you on the head. But physical causality is, is something we're very familiar with, right? Then he says there's biological causality because matter organized itself, uh, you know, uh, to result in the formation of living organisms that have evolved and become complex as we are. And uh, so biology has its own level of causality. Uh, lizards are the way they are, and people are the way they are, and oak trees are the way they are because of biological causality. They have genes and all of these other things, and life behaves in a particular way, so what we see today evolved its characteristics as a result of the operating of simple laws. A simple, simple, ordinary causality resulted in life. And most of us nowadays can understand that. It's amazing that the Buddha was able to see that. And then he said there's mental causality. As biological organisms become more complex, from trees to insects to simple animals to more complex animals, they begin to have minds. And, and minds are things that process information and come up with conclusions, decisions, right? And then the organism acts as a result of the, opera, the operating of those minds. And if we look at really simple animals like insects and lizards, you know, we see that that's what they, they, they're born with instincts. They don't, you, flies don't learn anything new, and lizards don't really learn anything new. They just, their minds process information and produce a logical result based on a combination of what they are experiencing and what their internal programs are. So, you know, for a lizard, its internal program says sit still or hide or run away or eat that thing or whatever. That's what it does. And, of course, we are a lot more complex. 
But basically, we do the same thing. We have an experience, and our mind processes it and comes to the conclusion that, well, this is what to do, and then we do it. So that is causality at the level of the mind. But humans are different than lizards because we learn and we constantly change how our minds work. Right? Hopefully. Well, well, actually, we definitely, everybody does, but unfortunately, some people get stuck in some not very good ways. But all of us are constantly changing. So the only way you can predict how a particular, you can predict what a lizard's going to do pretty easily, but the only way you can predict what a human is going to do is to know what all their past experiences were that are similar to the present experience and how that worked out for them and what ideas and concepts they formed or maybe what things they learned from other people because what we do in response to something is a result of all kinds of past experiences. This is the next level of causality which the Buddha called karma or intention. And this is how we're constantly changing the way our mind is going to respond to certain circumstances. And then the highest level of causality, the fifth level, is the Dharma, which is understanding the Dharma and how it works. Then we can escape from being prisoners of our mistaken view that uh, the idea of self that our mind creates really exists. And the way our mind presents the world to us really is the way it is. And once we see that, we can become free from suffering. And we can be, become very wise and free from suffering and filled with compassion. So these are the different levels of causality. So you see, in the Buddha's teaching, we explain all of those things that we used to think we had to have a self for. But the other part of what, the, you know, and this is not a bad news teaching that, well, you're just nothing but some fancy matter walking around. Because that, too, is a projection of your mind. That's the way we come into the world with the kind of mind we have. That's kind of the best understanding of things that our minds can generate. But when we become awakened, we have the opportunity to see a reality beyond that. And in that reality, Everything is absolutely, totally interconnected. Everything is one. There isn't this dualism of self and other. Everything is oneness. And we are, in, in that sense, although the individual selfness that we experience in this life is indeed temporary, we are actually something that is unborn and undying. But it is not, it's not that I'm a separate, unborn, and undying whatever, and you're a different separate, unborn, undying whatever. We are both the ultimate unborn and undying. Right? Uh, it is exactly the same idea that the Christian mystics were talking about when they describe God as being, you know, that we are all the children of God and we all ultimately become, once again, rejoined with, with God. And that there really is nothing that all the world and everything else like that is, uh, is, is 
is simply a uh, creation of God out of nothingness. Right? So the idea of what's behind all of these appearances in Buddhism is not that different than the ultimate, most refined, and, and what we would usually describe mystical understanding of what's there in all of the other religions. And in this highest level of all religions, including Christianity, the separate soul disappears in the ultimate oneness. So, now, that's something that we can't really understand and conceptualize and talk about very meaningfully because anything anything that I say about it or anybody else says about it, your conceptual mind is going to say, oh, well, that means, and immediately come to a wrong conclusion. So leave all of that aside. The important part, though, is that, in a sense, what you really are is identical with what everyone else really is. And so, you know, this whole idea, well, I used to be Joe Smith, and I might be reborn as either a lizard or Jill Jones, or whatever it is, becomes replaced with an idea more like, well, I was Margot in another lifetime, and Debbie, and Nancy, and Allegra, and Annie. In other words, uh, underneath this, there's really only one of us appearing in all of these different forms. Now, in that case, everything that every human does impacts other living beings, but it is impacting themselves. So, uh, at, at the deepest level, Hitler and the Nazis are no are not separate beings from the people that that uh, they treated so cruelly and killed. Now, at the level of them being separate beings, those people in the concentration camps, both the ones that died and the one that survived, how they experienced it was the result of their karma. For some of them, it was much more terrible than others. And some became enlightened and awakened themselves as a result of that horrible experience. So, as horrible as it was, it was still a manifestation of karma at that level of what we experience as a result of, uh, of our past. But at another level, none of any of this is separate, and everything is ultimately interconnected in a way that it goes beyond the time, the, the uh, interpretation of present, past, and future. So, uh, if you are not attached to your sense of self, and you're not attached to the belief that things really are the way that you experience them to be, and you happen to be caught in the path of a volcanic eruption, then you need not suffer. You can understand that from the point of view of the deepest truth, the most profound truth, 
and it need not be a cause of suffering. It is just what is happening, no differently than any of the pleasant experiences you've had in your life are just what is happening. And the same thing could be said of somebody who finds himself in a concentration camp. They could see that, well, in my life, I too have uh, treated others with unkindness. I've developed aversions and, and hatreds and things like that. And these Nazi guards are nothing other but other forms of me that are even more ignorant and have even made more have even made more seriously wrong karma for themselves. And a person with that kind of understanding may feel enormous compassion for all of those that are suffering around them, but they need not suffer themselves. And we have with us today some teachers who have been in somewhat similar situations. Uh, Tibetan lamas who were imprisoned for long periods of time and tortured and forced labor, but who, through their awakening, were able to view their guards and their torturers and the whole set of circumstances in the way that I described, to view, to view the, their guards and torturers as other versions of themselves and feel not hatred for them, but compassion for what they're doing to themselves by the way they, by the attitudes and actions and the way they treat other people, and seeing that the events that put them in the situation that they're in are just part of the unfolding of the whole, so that they need not be filled with hatred and suffering, but rather could, could experience this horror from a place of compassion, loving kindness, and an internal bliss that comes from understanding the truth that exists beyond that. So I know this is very difficult for us to understand when we're still feeling like we're a separate self and these things are happening to us and they're not fair and everything else. But I think at the same time, when we think about it, we, we can understand this. You had a question, did you? What it, uh, sorry, I, I don't even know where to start in with this. Okay. But uh, some of my students, we were discussing certain things, and they were asking about about karma and in reincarnation, because I was trying to teach them root words, and reincarnation was one, and so we had this big discussion. And so the question came up then, if, you know, because I, I said, I don't know very much, I'll tell you a little bit, and then I'll try to find out more. Um, is that then you, you don't interfere with anybody because that's just what they what they have earned in their life. And so I said, well, that's not what I believe. You know, I, um, and I, I can't tell them that I believe in reincarnation because my life will be over. But uh, <laughs> but um, you know, it, it is one of those things where I, I have a very difficult time um, with that whole thing. Yeah. But I I first heard about this from some Hindu student, mm -hmm. and their explanation for something that had happened that really upset me was, yes, but think about it this way, maybe in another life they had done blah blah, and so now they are, and at that time, it made me feel better, actually, mm -hmm. and then with time, I got to thinking about it, and I thought, 
wait a minute. Yeah. Then the Holocaust was like, why would anybody be upset that that was supposed to happen? And I that's just cannot go there. That's right, and that would that would be a, a horrible place to go. Um, when a person is confronted with somebody else who is suffering for any reason at all, if they have the thought, well, it's their karma, they must deserve it for some reason, then, then they are creating for themselves some bad karma. They are creating for themselves uh, a, a kind of karma that is without compassion and it is, uh, is going to harm them in the end. They're creating uh, a karma of indifference. And also, if they look at it carefully, what they'll find underneath that is that it really comes from uh, uh, a desire to, uh, maybe a desire to feel somehow superior to these other people. And that's a very evil kind of desire, that kind of conceit. Or maybe an aversion. It's like, well, I don't really want to go to the trouble of trying to help them. I don't really want to go to the trouble of trying to do this. That's always coming from aversion. So this attitude is just, it's saturated with all kinds of errors in view and bad karma. If you want to make good karma for yourself, then you feel compassion for anyone else's suffering. And if there is anything at all that you can do to help that person, then you should do it to the degree that you don't do it. You're making bad karma for yourself through uh, through your own aversion and desire and attachment and whatever it is. You know, I, I don't want to give up what I'm doing now to go to the trouble to help that other person. You know? So you are absolutely right. And that is that is a mistaken view. But that is how, you know, this sort of goes back to what I said. This was this is a, a view and an understanding of karma that predated the, the Buddha and also was used to justify right up to the present day uh, tremendous inequities in their society the, a caste system and a system that there are all these levels of people and that if somebody is born to be an untouchable and which is basically condemns them to a life of poverty and misery and lack of opportunity and being differentially treated in a most unfair way by every other level of society, they justify, well, it's, you know, it's their karma. They were born in that caste because of what they did in the past. And it helps to justify all kinds of people behaving selfishly. And, and it's a terribly flawed view. It's very unfortunate that people but hold the, it. The Buddha rejected the caste. You know, the Buddha very much I, but I've seen this, and we do see this in Buddhists, that they mistakenly understand karma in this way. And they too, well, well, it's that person's karma, you know. Uh, I can't worry about it. Or, but it's, uh, I sort of like what one of the teachers has said is it's my karma to see that suffering. So it's my karma to live in this world right now that I'm seeing, you know, big changes happening and terrible things are happening. You know, I mean, in eternity and in infinity, you know, we could be anywhere. <laughs> We're here. So, my karma to be in this part of reality, or whatever this is, <laughs> right now. When you're talking about 
addressing someone else's suffering, that's a really fine line. No because you can either be helping them from your own stuff, or yeah. you can be supporting them in the way that they need to be able to direct what they need to for themselves. Mm -hmm. I just watched a movie called The Soloist. Which is which There's is a perfect example. Is it out on that. DVD now? Pardon me. Is it on DVD now? I got it from Netflix. <laughs> we, we read the book. Yeah, it's a it's a really beautiful way to show people what you know what what is helping and what is serving. Mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right. As soon as we go to interact with somebody else, we need to be aware. Unless you're already a Buddha that any of your thoughts and inclinations are going to tend to be contaminated, tainted somewhat. And so you have to think very carefully. And it's always good to keep in mind some, you know, some really basic principles. Because otherwise, we start out wanting to help, but we end up interfering. Mm -hmm. you know? Instead of serving. Uh, instead, of, instead of serving, that's right. And, you know, it's hard uh, not to uh, fall into the trap of soon as you decide to help somebody else that your ego gets in there. Oh, aren't I great? You know, and and that whole thing of I said you could look at somebody and think, well, well, you know, I'm better than them exactly. because look what they're going through. Exactly. That is very much a danger. Even when you decide to help somebody, right. is that you get stuck in that idea that I'm. I'm better than them, I'm smarter than them, I know the solutions to their problem, and they are sufficiently inferior that they can't see these things that are obviously to me. And so you tell them what to do, and you get angry with them when they don't do it, and all this other stuff. And, you know, so... Uh, <laughs> so, when you, so when you're talking about karma, the, the simplicity of it that comes up to me is that we've we've looked at it, if we've been raised in the Christian way of looking at things, is that that could be a form of punishment when actually what it is, is it's an opportunity to grow. Mm -hmm. That's it's right. That's right. Whenever anybody's karma comes up, it's an opportunity. If it's good karma, it's an opportunity to recognize that good karma and cultivate it. And if it's bad karma, it's the opportunity to recognize and understand it and uh, not react in such a way that you make more bad karma. And in a sense, ultimately, that's one of the best things if you were able to do it, if you had the kind of skill that the Buddha did, one of the best things that you could communicate to somebody who's suffering is, is find a way to understand this as something that you can learn from and grow from, and stop wallowing in self-pity and do what you can do. Although, don't use those words. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can help them, because this is, the, this is what happens to us all, is bad things happen to us. Someone we love leaves us, our house burns down, or we lose our job, whatever it is. Uh, and, and also the little, littler things, too. You know, we have a quarrel with a sibling or something like that. The, the things happen to us, and we get 
trapped in our own misery, or as Eckhart Tolle says, our pain body just starts to have a heyday, you know, and gets out there and starts trying to tune into everybody else's pain body so that they can have a pain body party. And this is what happens when people come and they tell you about all those terrible things that happened to me. You know, they're really, they're trying to get your pain body to dance with their pain body. And the best thing that you can do is to very, very gently steer them away from it. Say, you know, that's not the best way to go. <laughs> that's not really going to help either you or me. <laughs> and when we're all, uh, when we can truly get this concept that we're, we're all, like I've said before, little drops of water in the ocean, yeah. and every thought we have, every act we make, everything we do, everything we say, affects that whole thing yeah. and it and it all it's all affecting every every drop that's in there is affecting every other that's every right. other thing so uh, something like the Holocaust or, or or all those people feeling that suffering and so forth send a shock throughout the whole it's still it's still being felt oh it's right? still being felt it's still yeah. being felt and so that there's no end that's to right. it. And so it seems like <clears throat> this is where maybe what they talk about the power of prayer, that it's real, that you're, you're sending, if, if you're sending love to this from your, yourself and seeing yourself as, as a love body, that wherever you go you're sending out love, then this um, creates a feeling of happiness in yourself right. as well as everyone in your whole situation or everyone that's around you or even you don't know how far it goes. I, I don't think we have any, you know, we don't usually think about how powerful we can be uh, with with our thoughts, especially our thoughts. That's right. And the words, of course, go out on vibrations and our actions also have consequences. The reason our thoughts have so much effect, so much more effect than we realize, is that that our thoughts affect in all kinds of subtle ways that we're not aware of how how we appear, what we what we say and do in all of these other ways. So our thoughts have these tremendous ramifications. Uh, the important thing maybe to to take from this is that, yeah, like you say, is to remember that everything you think or say or do basically affects everyone and everything else. So, you know, uh, anytime you're thinking that its effect is just private, that's a mistake. On the other hand, uh, keep in mind that everything you think, say, or do is going to affect who and what you are and how you experience things in the future. You know, there is kind of two levels to what I've talked about here. There's the ultimate level of what we really are, but until you become awakened, you're still going to feel like this world exists independently from this self that is real, and you're going to experience desires. And so what you have to do is to take as much 
wisdom, as much understanding as you can have, and modify the operation of this self-concept and this world concept and the desires that you have so, so that they are directed in the most positive way. If you believe you have a self, you feel like you are a self, then that makes it very important to you how you affect yourself through karma. And so, in that regard, believing you're a self it can be made into a good thing in terms of helping you to advance on your spiritual path. Because let your selfishness make you be very careful about all your thoughts and words and deeds, and to be on guard against the kinds of desires and aversions that you experience. Uh, and also, as long as we have desires, let them be desires for awakening, desires for the well-being of others, desires for, uh, for all of the kind of positive things. You know. And as long as we're going to have aversions without letting them take over us and turn into hatreds, let this be, let them be the kind of aversion that when we see someone else suffering and that there is something that can be done to change that, you know, let us, our aversions that we are going to have anyway serve to motivate us to do things and change things that will alleviate the suffering of others and ourself and others in the future. So, I mean, if you're really practicing, if you understand this and you're really practicing it, you are concerned about the world and the environment and uh, certain kinds of political events and social practices and things like that. And, and so you, you won't be a withdrawn vegetable, you know. You'll be somebody that, that, that is participating fully in the world, but not caught up in unwholesome desires and not allowing your aversion to cruelty and injustice turn into hatred and intolerance. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. Did, did we get everything? Is there anything left hanging out there that... Well, no, not really. I mean, you touched on something I think I'll meditate on because I, I, I have been feeling, I guess, as close to hatred and aversion as I can possibly have uh, for, please forgive me, uh, extreme Muslims. Yeah. And so I, I, I really struggle with that. So I will meditate right. today. Uh, well, just the last comment to help you with that is that just to recognize that the hatred you feel for them is not going to have any effect on all of them, but it is having an effect on you, right? So keep that in mind. And, and letting go of that hatred doesn't at all mean that you're willing to accept that the kinds of things that they do continue. <laughs> but there's no reason to set your own uh, clothes on fire because you're mad at what somebody else is doing. <laughs> well, I think what you were saying that about <coughs> participating in the world is is a really good um, thought because 
but I think that sometimes in Buddhism uh, you can get to the, the idea that everything is an illusion anyway, so just don't pay any attention to it, um, just meditate and and be in your, in your own space and not pay any attention to anything. And on the other hand, because we have this uh, television, which is mostly, to me, lies, uh, always trying to, sh you know, get us worked up and in fear and trembling and so forth, it, it seems to, to me what I'm thinking is I want to participate in the world um, in, in, in a more natural way. <coughs> um, if, if, if we didn't watch television, we wouldn't, that particular kind of television anyway, we wouldn't have any idea what was happening in other parts of the world. We wouldn't have to be upset about it. We wouldn't have to take it on as reality. And uh, but but to in our own neighborhoods and our own mandalas, as I call it, that we create harmony and 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 love and in in our wider range, whatever we can do. Um, that we can see it is valuable. We can we can do that. It's helpful for me for you to say that because there's always this desire in a way to just say, oh, it's all just so terrible. I'm not going to even not even going to be in this world. Let me out of here. You know, a lot of people are saying that. I just want out of here. <clears throat> and of course, we do. You know, eventually we're right. going to be out of here, and that's the <laughs> if we can if we can become enlightened, we won't have to worry about it. And also, the I have two two of my elder friends who are both um, uh, dying of cancer right now, and I'm talking with them, the process with them, and so what you were saying today is very helpful to me in talking with them. They're, they're both have Buddhist um, understandings to some extent, but when you get to the place where, you know, in six weeks I'm, I'm not going to be here anymore, then you have a lot of, life looks a lot different. And you, and you begin to start thinking about some things that you put off. Yeah. And uh, so I, I'm, I, I'm really grateful for your, for your comments. Teachings. Well, thank you. I'm very grateful for your comments. This was very good. Yes? I just wanted to share something. I, I've been in a really good place for a really long time, and recently I, I had a little sort of setback where I was feeling actually ill will towards another person. And it was um, disturbing, but it enabled me to see that was that. When I was experiencing that ill will, that was suffering, and helped me to see other people's hatred and ill will as their form of suffering. And it really, real suffering, kind of a, kind of really suffering. Yeah. yeah. I hadn't thought about it. Remind me to give you the brochure of uh, 
Joanna Macy, who's just the, from the she's a Paya. Uh, she she's in Tucson doing uh, Death and Dying on oh, November 14th, and she's fantastic. It's sat I know the St. Philip's Church. Yeah. Not Joanna Macy. Is it Macy. not Joanna? It's, what's it's, her? It's Joan uh, Halifax. Joan Halifax. Oh, Joan right. Halifax. Oh, I'd love yeah. to so go Joan to So Joan Halifax is doing a whole thing about being with death and dying and it's a, a one day thing on oh she's one of my teachers it's on Friday a couple of weeks from now yeah so oh, I can't I make it oh yes but both of my friends are in so like you would probably love to be there I would I would and have the brochure if you if you are there my house is walking distance from St. Philip's Church and you're welcome to stay the night if you need thank you that's good yeah yeah Okay. She's also going through her own experience, yeah, don't and so also. it's an experiential yes. expression that she's sharing with people because she's become very fragile. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. She's been, she's written all these books about death and dying, and now she, in fact, is dying. Mm -hmm. as she well. gets, gets so she's going to be like very powerful. Oh boy! <laughs> it just occurred to me. I add one more thing to Margot. If should the conversation come up like the previous one with the Hindus that about well it's their karma. The important thing that you can probably reach them most clearly through is to say, yes, but how you react, that's going to be your karma. That's that's the thing that they'll that'll wake them up to oh yeah, I never thought of that before. You know, I, I, I was trying to formulate a, a sentence or two that I could say in response. Because I, I knew that's what you had said, and that made such sense to me that that's nice and short and sweet, and I can just move on and let them think about it. Yeah. Thank you. Very nice.